The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, in chapter 22. Lord willing, we'll get back into the book of Numbers next time we're together. But we're in today. We'll be in the book of Matthew, in chapter 22. To introduce why I kind of felt the need to discuss the passage we're going to look at today. I'm not going to name names. If you're interested, you can see it in this week's edition of the Quay County Sun. But a local pastor was interviewed or his words were recorded in the article. And basically what he wound up saying is the reason that their church is going above and beyond everything that the governor has mandated be done because of the virus, they're going farther and they're enforcing her decrees with a great deal of zeal. And he, uh, in that article, he was apparently justifying their actions based upon the fact that Jesus said, we're supposed to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And I wanted to go through the passage today and just talk about what the, what the verse in question actually means. And I think what we're going to see is anytime you make that kind of claim, anytime you say, I'm doing this because I'm rendering unto Caesar, you can't leave the last half of that phrase off. If you say, I'm rendering unto Caesar, then you are saying, this that I am rendering belongs to Caesar. And you cannot say the church is doing what we're doing inside the sanctuary for this worship service because we're rendering unto Caesar unless you're also willing to say Caesar is the Lord over what we do inside the church. I think that was a disastrous thing for that pastor to say. And it's what I've been saying for a long time from this pulpit. We have to get back to understanding the very Protestant doctrine of a separation of spheres of authority. Government is a legitimate authority that God has endowed with legitimate delegated authority, a delegated lane to stay in. Just because you have authority doesn't mean you get to exercise it everywhere or for every case. There are clearly defined rules in the word of God about what the government's allowed to do and what it's not allowed to do. And one of the things the government is not allowed to do is regulate the worship of God's people. There is one Lord of the church and it's never been Caesar. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other confession than that, to my mind, it's blasphemous. It's a confession of idolatry. We saw in, in Sunday school today that to confess things like to say that the Pope is the, victor, the vicar of Christ, the vicarious one in place of Christ, that's a title of blasphemy. It's a blasphemous thing to say that there is any human being who can occupy the same place as Christ. Christ is the Lord of his church. No man is. 
So I want to see exactly what is meant then when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. We're in Matthew chapter 22, and verse 15 is where we'll begin. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the fact that your word is so stable, so trustworthy, stronger than the very foundations of the earth, less likely to pass away than even the heavens. All these things will pass away, but your word will remain forever. And we're thankful that your word is thus able to bear whatever weight we place upon it. We don't have to worry about overloading it or cracking it because we're putting too much of our trust in it. I thank you that that's not even possible. I pray that you would help us to understand and apply what we have in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what happens? The Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus. They team up with some guys that they normally didn't like to team up with. Here they're called the Herodians. Uh, Depending on what commentary you look at, it's going to be hard to figure out exactly who the Herodians were. But generally, it's a group that's probably associated with the Sadducees. You've heard of them. The chief priests and the scribes were the Sadducees, and you, you had the Pharisees and the lawyers. Generally speaking, it's like the Republicans and Democrats getting together to try to hammer Jesus. Because you had the right wing, who was the Pharisees. They were very conservative Bible believers. And then you had the left wing who were the Sadducees who were willing to say these things in the scripture, especially these supernatural things, we don't know, that's probably not real. You actually had a group within the Sadducees that here at least are called the Herodians. Now Herod was the puppet king that was installed and supported by Rome at the time. And it was because Herod was the king over this Jewish nation Because of that, the Sadducees had jobs. They were the temple people. If you went to the temple and dealt with any of the priests or any of the workers there, you weren't going to be dealing with the Pharisees. These were the liberals, the Sadducees. And so their jobs depended on the stability, not just of Herod, but of Rome. Who knew? You know, if if political things get too hot, they said at one place, if, if Jesus keeps teaching these things, the Romans are going to come and remove our place. We'll be out of a job. What are we going to do? We have no skills. We just hang out at church all day. What are we going to do for a living? And so 
they went with the Herodians. Now the Herodians, of course, are going to be very pro-Herod. The Pharisees and another group called the Zealots that you hear about once in a while, they're very upset about the fact that in the Holy Land that had been promised to all the patriarchs and finally given to them under Joshua, they're very upset about the fact that now these pagan Romans have come in and now it's pagans in charge of the Holy Land. And for them, this was just, it was a blasphemous thought. It was hard for them to fathom that God would allow pagan Rome to come in and be in charge of them. So they hated it, and they were looking for ways to maybe cast off Rome. They were rebellious people anyway, and they're looking for ways to cast off Rome. So you see the weirdness that we have there. It's like the alt-right getting together with Antifa, and they've got one united purpose. Nothing will unite the forces of evil like the preaching of the gospel. <laughs> and we see that happening here. All the bad guys are getting together to shut down the king of that gospel. What can we do? Well, they come up with this trick question. And I hope you see it's a trick question. Jesus calls them hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite come, goes back to the theater of the day where they didn't have costumes, but they held masks in front of their faces. So all the actors would show you what character they're playing by the mask. And a hypocrite was one who wore a mask. They're, they're projecting something different than what they actually are. And Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy, even in just asking the question. But they come up with this awesome question. They're going to trick him. One way or the other, we're about to see, they're going to trick him and he's not going to be able to He's in a box. He won't be able to get out. And so in, in verse 16, the disciples go to him, say, Teacher, we know you are truthful. No, you don't. They absolutely didn't believe that. You hear people today say, Oh, I think Jesus was a good man. I'm just not sure he was God. I think Jesus was a great teacher. No, you don't. If you thought he was a great teacher, you'd do what he said. How can he be a good man if he's claiming to be the son of God when he's not? That would seem to be pretty evil. That's on David Koresh level. Right? That's on Pope level. You're not a good man. If you're claiming to be the son of God and you're not the son of God, that's evil, not good. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they agreed that there's no way this Jesus can be God in the flesh. They believe that, but they come to him anyway. Teacher, rabbi, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. No, they didn't. It gives me no end of uh, cruel satisfaction when I hear uh, ignorant believers try to justify their slavish obedience to whatever the state happens to say, one of the things they will say is, well, Jesus never defied the rulers of his day. I think you need to start listening to those rulers. They're the ones who said, we got to stop this guy. He's taking away all of our power. Part of it is, I think we've got this idea that if you're resisting tyranny, that means taking up arms or you're damaging things, you're breaking property or you're killing people. And that's not it at all. 
Jesus resisted the evil authorities of his day by letting that theme of their evil and their wickedness dominate his public teaching for three and a half years. If you take out everything Jesus has to say about the wickedness of the rulers of the Jews in his day, you're not going to have much left. And they knew that. They understood that. Oh, we know you teach the way of God in truth. No, you don't. Get out of here. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now you've got this mixed crowd around. It's public. And they've got their crafty little question. Understand, it's a trick question. They don't really care what Jesus' answer is in terms of he's the guy who's going to tell us the right way to go. They only care what his answer is in how it's going to hook him on one or the other horns of the dilemma that they're trying to trap him in. In their minds, he can't say anything without being in trouble one way or the other. Because they ask, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? Well, what if he says no? No. No. Don't be paying those taxes. Well, that'll make the Pharisees and the more conservative people really happy. But what are the Herodians going to do? They're running right to Herod. And they're saying, hey, you got to pay attention to this Jesus guy. He's teaching the people not to pay taxes. And so what's Herod do? Chunk, 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 sends the, the jackbooted thugs to go after Jesus. Right? He's destroyed at that point. His ministry is shut down. If Herod gets the idea that he's teaching a tax rebellion or something like that. Well, Jesus might go the other way and say, yes, absolutely, pay all your taxes to Caesar. If that's all he said, then that's going to make the more liberal people happy and it's going to make the more pro-Roman people happy. But who's going to get mad? All the conservatives who hate Rome. And so either way, he's going to be disgraced with the people or he's going to be disgraced with the authorities. Either way, he's destroyed in terms of being able to continue to minister publicly. Now, I speak to you all Christians who have been reading your Bibles yourselves for a long time. You've read through the Gospels and you've seen Jesus act. Let me just ask you a rhetorical question. How does Jesus react when somebody asks him a question that isn't really... Uh, genuine. Does he, does he nonetheless give them a straightforward, genuine answer? Absolutely not. What does he do? An evil and wicked generation seeks after a sign. He'll give you an answer like that. Or he gets asked a disingenuous question and he asks them a question back. Right? Jesus is under no obligation to answer a trick question with a straightforward answer. I want to tell you what Jesus really did here. He answered a trick question that was not genuine. He answered it with a trick answer, which is exactly what they deserved. Now, there was nothing wrong in what he said, but his answer was a trick. Because now what are they going to do? Why are you testing me? Show me this thing. It's got the image of Caesar on it. Give it back to Caesar's. And now in verse 23, it says, Hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So the leaders of the Herodians say, so what did he say? Did he say, don't pay the taxes? No, no he didn't. 
He didn't say that. Ah, oh, we can't get him that way. And then he, the conservatives go back to their uh, people. Well, what did he say? Did he say to just be slavishly handing over these taxes? Well, not, no. He really kind of made it seem like everything that belongs to God should be given to God. And uh, I, don't, I don't even understand his answer. So he, he, he <laughs> with, with the devious, God shows himself to be shrewd. Here it's an amazing thing to me. He just came up with this answer on the, uh, on the fly. Give me that question and three months to come up with a good answer to get out of it. I'm not coming up with it. And a lot of people have pointed out here, then if you take both halves of his answer seriously, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's. If you take both of those seriously, at some point you've got to, you've got to answer the question, what doesn't belong to God? Psalm 24, verse 1, and many other places in the scripture say, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Listen, there's nothing in the whole created universe that doesn't belong to the creator. The deceived and the deceiver are his. God is sovereign over everything. So now, now that we meditate on this answer just a little bit, if God owns everything, uh, what now do we render to Caesar? Well, I don't think it's quite that cut and dry because the God who owns everything has in fact set down rules for civil government. Caesar had authority from God for a purpose that was designed by God. The question that I want you to take away from this is simply this. When we say it's right to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, the fundamental question we need to answer is, how do we know what belongs to Caesar and who gets to say? And this is where I'm telling you the scripture is very clear what belongs to Caesar. It belongs to Caesar to go out and punish those who actually do evil. It belongs to Caesar to reward those who do what is right. Well, that gets us a little ways down the road, but we got to go even farther than that. If we admit it's Caesar's place to punish those who do evil, does Caesar get to define what evil is? No, he's God's servant to you for your good. It says, it says in Romans chapter 13, the, the governor is God's servant to you. God's deacon, actually, in the Greek. So his job is to enforce not his own definitions of right and wrong, but God's. So I ask you again, who gets to define what belongs to Caesar? Jesus seemed to define it here as, well, what has, what has Caesar's image on it? Well, the coin that Caesar minted has his image on it. If he minted the coin and wants it back, give it to him. But even that has to be balanced with the fact that Caesar himself is made in the image of God. Whose image did Caesar bear? God's. 
yeah, give the coin to Caesar because it bears his image, but Caesar must be rendered to God because he also bears the image of God. See how this works? This, does this sound like a blank check to just do whatever the government says or, or rather a blank check for the government to just demand whatever it wants to demand and you and I are left here to say, well, okay, render unto Caesar. That is not right. We read in the scripture, we go all the way back to the uh, old covenant with Moses and Yahweh delivered rules which were righteous and just. He gave, he gave the king in Israel such a narrow path. He said to the king in Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you're not allowed to violate what I have commanded to the left or to the right. You're supposed to do what I have said. Well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. No, Hebrews comes along and then tells us that all the punishments that were listed in the law of God are just. That's New Testament. Saying that the Old Testament punishments are just. Not harsh, not barbaric, not too lenient or too soft, but they're right down the line of justice. If you are going to violate God's commandments and punish crimes in the way that you think is right, y'all are on social media and you see every time a story comes up about a child molester or somebody who kidnaps a child and does horrible things to that person and they catch them, in the comment sections you'll have all these people talking about, well, here's what I would do if I got in a room with this guy. I'd cut off this, I'd chop off that, I'd stuff it in his that. And, and it's all these different ideas people speaking out of their anger of what they would do. But God's law doesn't allow God's people to think in those ways. What we need to be thinking about is what does God say is just in this situation. You think you're, you think you're moving in a direction of greater harshness. That's not greater righteousness, though. What God has commanded is just. And when Caesar commands things that are in violation with the commandments of God, either too harsh or too lenient, then Caesar has departed from justice. And so, my friends, for a pastor to get up in the pulpit and say, the reason that we are taking all these alien precautions and even going farther than the governor has told us that we must go, the reason we are doing this is because Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. No, Caesar's is the punished crime. You do not belong to Caesar. Your children and your grandchildren do not belong to Caesar. Your church and the way your church practices the worship service does not belong to Caesar. Your family does not belong to Caesar. Your own conscience and your self-government under God does not belong to Caesar. Now, you go out and commit actual crimes, crimes defined not by Caesar, but by Caesar's boss. You commit actual crimes. Now that belongs to Caesar. And he's supposed to come in there and do something about that at that point. Does this make sense to you? I hope it does. I think it is tragic. And for me, it's been one of the one of the issues right from the get-go of this, of this whole uh, virus situation that has made me realize uh, something smells bad. 
there's a rottenness in the middle of what we're being told. Uh, I don't mean to keep you here very long, but I want to give you just a few things. I was thinking about it lately in, in the light of what this passage has just said. I think that Christians have gone wrong. Majority of Christians, Christian pastors and leadership have gone wrong from the jump, as the kids say. Wrong from Jump Street. Because there were a few biblical concepts that I don't think they kept in mind. And I just want to go through them a little bit. If you want me to elaborate later, we certainly can. One of the first things that Christian leadership throughout America did wrong is they, by and large, trusted witnesses that have proven untrustworthy. Particularly the federal government and the mainstream media. Now, I'm not telling you alternative media is a bunch of uh, fine truth tellers. But mainstream media has proven time and again a willingness to tell you lies. And already in the middle of this coronavirus, CBS has had to come out and admit that they staged scenes to make the whole thing look scarier than it really is. You've been lied to during the thing. That should be enough to make you think, maybe I need to stop listening to this witness. Look up the Tuskegee experiment. When the federal government shot people full of syphilis without telling them that's what they were doing, shot people full of syphilis just to track the progress of the disease. The federal government has admitted to spraying radioactivity on certain parts of Kansas City. Can you guess whether they were the rich parts or the slums? They sprayed radioactivity on slums in Kansas City just to track the effects of radioactivity on human people. I just saw a documentary just last night on Netflix about one man in particular who was dosed with LSD by the CIA just to see the effects, and he wound up jumping out a 10-story window. And the government then spent 20 years covering up that whole thing. These are the people you're going to trust. I listen to a radio show called Iron Sharpens Iron. I love it. I recommend it. I think it's good listening. But they've had a series of pastors come on there advocating that, that Christian people simply obey what they're told by the government. And one of the things that they continue to come up with, one of the ideas that's repeated, is just that it's wrong for the Christian not to trust what they're being told. Every one of these pastors is willing to just say things like, they actually say this. Well, they're just people in a hard spot. They're trying to do the best that they can possibly do. You wouldn't want to be in their spot, and they're just doing their best. They don't have an agenda. They're just trying to keep us all safe. And I'm like, Romans chapter 3, anybody? There is none who does good, no, not one. The verse quoted by our brother from Jeremiah, was it 17? About the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Oh, but that changes once you're in an elected position. That changes once you, we give you a badge and a gun. Now you're no longer totally depraved. Now we should trust what you say. Proverbs says it's foolish to trust a fool. That's just the concept that's repeated there. It's foolish to trust a known false witness. And by and large, the church was not, not willing to apply that. 
by and large, the church was willing to trust whatever they've been told. You still hear people talking about, well, COVID's killed 96,000 Americans. Well, nothing else has, apparently. Flu has disappeared. Flu doesn't kill anybody anymore. Pneumonia doesn't kill anybody anymore. Heard about people dying of heart attacks is counted as a COVID, coronavirus death. One of the president's own cabinet members said, leaked out that during a message or during a meeting, she said, she's a doctor herself, she said, I can't trust any of the numbers coming out of the CDC. But we have Christians who hear that and ignore it and say, well, it's the government, it's Romans 13, we should just do whatever they say. 2nd way, I think church, leader, church leaders uh, went off rails right at the beginning was they accepted false versions of what it means to love your neighbor. My friend Bill Evans has said we should have smelled a rat right at the beginning when all the baby killers started telling, it, telling us what it means to love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor does not mean putting your neighbor under house arrest for the sake of trying to make life safe for another one of your neighbors. Loving your neighbor does not mean destroying their small business for the sake of maybe making life safer for another one of your neighbors. Loving your neighbor does not mean putting them in such a position that they must die in isolation, no visitors even allowed in a hospital. Our friend, my friend and coworker Roseanne recently passed away. We mentioned that last week from cancer. And when I went to go visit her, yes, I visited her. You know why? Not because I'm a great guy, but because my Lord tells me he wants his people to go visit the sick. And I'm sure I was in violation of all sorts of stuff by going to her house and talking to her and her family. She said the doctors all wanted her to go in for a second round of chemo, thought maybe there was a chance. And she said the first round almost killed me. It wasn't what they were doing to me, but it was the fact that none of my family could come and be with me. She spent the whole duration of her treatment completely isolated from friends and family and knew she could die like that. And there was no way she wanted to go back and do the same thing. This is not what it means to love your neighbor. Leaving your neighbor at home alone to just stew in their thoughts and not have any visit. That's not loving your neighbor. Matthew chapter 25 makes this incredibly clear. Jesus says the reason the goats are going into the flames is because you did not visit me when I was sick. You did not visit me when I was in prison. Visiting the lowly and the helpless is loving your neighbor. And in the history of the Christian church's responses to pandemics, actual pandemics that killed multitudes of people, you know what the Christian response was? Not isolation, but going. Going to them, risking their own lives, and many of them dying for the sake of risking their own lives to simply obey the command of Christ to go and visit the sick and minister to them. And in places like the Black Plague and things like this, it was... Christian pastors and leaders going to places to minister to people who were sick and on the edge of death whose own families were too fearful to be with them and had deserted them. It wasn't Christians saying, oh, I love you, so I hope it goes well for you. 
oh, I'll be over here. That is not a Christian response to pandemic. It's simply not. It never has been. It's a made-up new thing. And it was made up by people who have an agenda, let me tell you. You know the WHO, the World Health Organization, you know the WHO is just the medical wing of the United Nations? How many of you trust the United Nations as far as you can throw them? But, oh, the WHO says, uh, uh, what? Third way that I think church leaders have gone off the, off the rails right from the beginning is they bought into this idea that when people stand up and assert their rights or demand the freedoms that are legally theirs, that to do so is an act of selfishness and greed. Right from the beginning, this whole thing was, was couched in terms of blood versus money. You just want your money and you don't care who dies. And that's the way this thing has been couched the entire time. But it's not blood versus money. It's blood versus blood. 400 and more percent increase in suicides since the lockdown started. This is blood versus blood. Livelihoods destroyed. People's entire life work being reduced to nothing. This is blood versus blood. And it is not selfish for Christian people to stand up and say, I am protected by legal protections that guard my freedoms. If you have an argument with that, you have an argument with the Apostle Paul and everything that he did in the book of Acts. Was Paul being selfish when he stood up and demanded his rights as a Roman citizen in order to escape cruel and unjust treatment at the hands of the Romans? No, absolutely not. In America, we used to understand that when a group of people over here stand up and demand their freedoms, they're helping everybody when they do that. My dad was a prosecuting attorney for most of his career. And then he got out of the politics game and decided to just be a defense attorney. And there were people, for a while it was me, who said, oh, I don't know if I could do that, putting, helping the bad guys stay out of prison. I don't know if I could do that. Until he sat me down and explained to me one time, the harder I make it for the government to prosecute a guilty person the less able they're going to be to prosecute an innocent one. Standing up for the rights of even this bad guy means that your rights as good people are more protected. And when I stand up as a pastor and a leader in the church of God and say, Caesar has no control over what the church does inside the church, that's good for you, it's good for your kids, it's good for your grandkids, it's good for Christians all over these United States. I would rather shut up. I'll just be honest with you. I would rather not say anything. I'm a go along to get along kind of guy. I don't mind sitting on my couch and eating Cheetos all day long and just waiting for some kind of check to come in. Fine. But I've got kids. Hopefully one day I'll, I might see some grandkids. Yeah, not that I'm hurrying you or anything, right? <laughs> I'm not rushing you into anything. Although I do have some names and numbers. <laughs> I, I, we've got generations. 
founding fathers, we mentioned before, who signed the Declaration of Independence, they were faced with paying a 3% tax that was unjust. And they didn't revolt over a 3% tax. They revolted over the fact that if we let this go, more is coming tomorrow. And by the time our children are our age, they will be literal slaves. The time to fight against being politically enslaved is when you're free, not when you're slaves. Oh, but New Testament, what is it? No, New Testament says this. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. For freedom, Christ set you free. Do not accept again a yoke of slavery. Now, I'm not saying we have to be jerks. I'm not saying we have to pick up guns, pitchforks, torches, none of that. But I am saying that you remain free by simply doing the free thing. Everybody got that? Any questions, comments about any of this? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you indeed for being with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to lead us. We ask that you would guide us in coming days. Let us be a witness. Let us be that light that cannot be hidden. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.